Chapters eight and nine of Looking Backward. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Anna Simon. Looking Backward, two thousand to eighteen hundred and eighty-seven, by Edward Bellamy. Chapter eight. When I awoke, I felt greatly refreshed and lay a considerable time in a dozing state, enjoying the sensation of bodily comfort. The experiences of the day previous, my waking to find myself in the year two thousand, the sight of the new Boston, my host and his family and the wonderful things I had heard, were a blank in my memory. I thought I was in my bedchamber at home, and the half-dreaming, half-waking fancies which passed before my mind related to the incidents and experiences of my former life. Dreamily I reviewed the incidents of Decoration Day, my trip in company with Edith and her parents to Mount Auburn, and my dining with them on our return to the city. I recalled how extremely well Edith had looked, and from that fell to thinking of our marriage." but scarcely had my imagination begun to develop this delightful theme than my waking dream was cut short by the recollection of the letter I had received the night before from the builder announcing that the new strikes might postpone indefinitely the completion of the new house. The chagrin which this recollection brought with it effectually roused me. I remembered that I had an appointment with the builder at eleven o'clock to discuss the strike, and, opening my eyes, looked up at the clock at the foot of my bed to see what time it was but no clock met my glance, and what was more, I instantly perceived that I was not in my room. Starting up on my couch, I stared wildly round the strange apartment. I think it must have been many seconds that I sat up thus in bed, staring about, without being able to regain the clue to my personal identity. I was no more able to distinguish myself from pure being during those moments than we may suppose a soul in the rough to be before it has received the earmarks the individualizing touches which make it a person. Strange that the sense of this inability should be such anguish. But so we are constituted. There are no words for the mental torture I endured during this helpless, eyeless groping for myself in a boundless void. No other experience of the mind gives probably anything like the sense of absolute intellectual arrest from the loss of a mental fulcrum, a starting point of thought, which comes during such a momentary obscuration of the sense of one's identity. I trust I may never know what it is again. I do not know how long this condition had lasted. It seemed an interminable time, when, like a flash, the recollection of everything came back to me. I remembered who and where I was, and how I had come here, and that these scenes, as of the life of yesterday, which had been passing before my mind, concerned a generation, long, long ago, moulded to dust. Leaping from bed, I stood in the middle of the room, clasping my temples with all my might between my hands to keep them from bursting. Then I fell prone on the couch, and, burying my face in the pillow, lay without motion. The reaction which was inevitable from the mental elation, the fever of the intellect that had been the first effect of my tremendous experience, had arrived. The emotional crisis which had awaited the full realization of my actual position, and all that it implied, was upon me and with set teeth and labouring chest, gripping the bedstead with frenzied strength, I lay there and fought for my sanity. In my mind all had broken loose, habits of feeling, associations of thought, ideas of persons and things, all had dissolved and lost coherence, and were seething together in apparently irretrievable chaos. There were no rallying points, nothing was left stable. There only remained the will, and was any human will strong enough to say to such a weltering sea, Peace, be still? I dared not think. Every effort to reason upon what had befallen me, and realize what it implied, 
set up an intolerable swimming of the brain. The idea that I was two persons, that my identity was double, began to fascinate me with its simple solution of my experience. I knew that I was on the verge of losing my mental balance. If I lay there thinking, I was doomed. Diversion of some sort I must have, at least a diversion of physical exertion. I sprang up, and, hastily dressing, opened the door of my room and went downstairs. The hour was very early, it being not yet fairly light, and I found no one in the lower part of the house. There was a hat in the hall, and, opening the front door, which was fastened with a slightness indicating that burglary was not among the perils of the modern Boston, I found myself on the street. For two hours I walked or ran through the streets of the city, visiting most quarters of the peninsular part of the town. None but an antiquarian who knows something of the contrast which the Boston of today offers to the Boston of the nineteenth century can begin to appreciate what a series of bewildering surprises I underwent during that time. Viewed from the housetop the day before, the city had indeed appeared strange to me, but that was only in its general aspect. How complete the change had been I first realized now that I walked the streets. The few old landmarks which still remained only intensified this effect for without them I might have imagined myself in a foreign town. A man may leave his native city in childhood, and return fifty years later, perhaps, to find it transformed in many features. He is astonished, but he is not bewildered. He is aware of a great lapse of time, and of changes likewise occurring in himself meanwhile. He but dimly recalls the city as he knew it when a child. But remember that there was no sense of any lapse of time with me. So far as my consciousness was concerned, it was but yesterday, but a few hours, since I had walked these streets, in which scarcely a feature had escaped a complete metamorphosis. The mental image of the old city was so fresh and strong that it did not yield to the impression of the actual city, but contended with it, so that it was first one and then the other which seemed the more unreal. There was nothing I saw which was not blurred in this way, like the faces of a composite photograph. Finally, I stood again at the door of the house from which I had come out. My feet must have instinctively brought me back to the side of my old home, for I had no clear idea of returning thither. It was no more homelike to me than any other spot in this city of its strange generation, nor were its inmates less utterly and necessarily strangers than all the other men and women now on the earth. Had the door of the house been locked, I should have been reminded by its resistance that I had no object in entering, and turned away but it yielded to my hand, and advancing with uncertain steps through the hall, I entered one of the apartments opening from it. Throwing myself into a chair, I covered my burning eyeballs with my hands to shut out the horror of strangeness. My mental confusion was so intense as to produce actual nausea. The anguish of those moments during which my brain seemed melting, or the abjectness of my sense of helplessness, how can I describe? In my despair I groaned aloud. I began to feel that unless some help should come, I was about to lose my mind. And just then, it did come. I heard the rustle of drapery, and looked up. Edith Leet was standing before me. Her beautiful face was full of the most poignant sympathy. "'Oh, what's the matter, Mr. West?' she said. "'I was here when you came in. I saw how dreadfully distressed you looked, and when I heard you groan, I could not keep silent. What has happened to you? Where have you been?' Can't I do something for you? Perhaps she involuntarily held out her hands in a gesture of compassion as she spoke. At any rate, 
I had caught them in my own, and was clinging to them, with an impulse as instinctive as that which prompts the drowning man to seize upon and cling to the rope which is thrown him as he sings for the last time. As I looked up into her compassionate face and her eyes moist with pity, my brain ceased to whirl. The tender human sympathy which thrilled in the soft pressure of her fingers had brought me the support I needed. Its effect to calm and soothe was like that of some wonder-working elixir. "'God bless you,' I said after a few moments. "'He must have sent you to me just now. I think I was in danger of going crazy if you had not come.' At this the tears came into her eyes. "'Oh, Mr. West!' she cried. "'How heartless you must have thought us! How could we leave you to yourself so long? But it is over now, is it not? You are better, surely.' "'Yes,' I said, "'thanks to you. "'If you will not go away quite yet, "'I shall be myself soon.' "'Indeed, I will not go away,' she said, "'with a little quiver of her face, "'more expressive of her sympathy "'than a volume of words. "'You must not think us so heartless "'as we seemed in leaving you so by yourself. "'I scarcely slept last night "'for thinking how strange your waking would be this morning. "'But father said you would sleep till late.' He said that it would be better not to show too much sympathy with you at first, but to try to divert your thoughts and make you feel that you were among friends. "'You have indeed made me feel that,' I answered. "'But you see, it is a good deal of a jolt to drop a hundred years, and although I did not seem to feel it so much last night, I have had very odd sensations this morning.' While I held her hands and kept my eyes on her face, I could already even jest a little at my plight. "'No one thought of such a thing as you're going out in the city alone so early in the morning,' she went on. "'Oh, Mr. West, where have you been?' Then I told her of my morning's experience, from my first waking till the moment I had looked up to see her before me, just as I have told it here. She was overcome by distressful pity during the recital, and, though I had released one of her hands, did not try to take from me the other, seeing, no doubt, how much good it did me to hold it. "'I can think a little what this feeling must have been like,' she said. "'It must have been terrible. "'And to think you were left alone to struggle with it. "'Can you ever forgive us?' "'But it is gone now. "'You have driven it quite away for the present,' I said. "'You will not let it return again?' she queried anxiously. "'I can't quite say that,' I replied. "'It might be too early to say that, "'considering how strange everything will still be to me. "'But you will not try to contend with it alone again, at least,' she persisted. Promise that you'll come to us, and let us sympathize with you, and try to help you. Perhaps we can't do much, but it will surely be better than to try to bear such feelings alone. "'I will come to you, if you will let me,' I said. "'Oh, yes, yes, I beg you will,' she said eagerly. "'I would do anything to help you that I could.' "'All you need do is to be sorry for me, as you seem to be now,' I replied. "'It is understood, then,' she said, smiling with wet eyes that you are to come and tell me next time, and not run all over Boston among strangers. This assumption that we were not strangers seemed scarcely strange, so near within these few minutes had my trouble and her sympathetic tears brought us. I will promise when you come to me, she added, with an expression of charming archness, passing, as she continued, into one of enthusiasm, to seem as sorry for you as you wish, but you must not for a moment suppose that I am really sorry for you at all or that I think you'll long be sorry for yourself. I know, as well as I know that the world now is heaven compared with what it was in your day, 
that the only feeling you will have after a little while will be one of thankfulness to God that your life in that age was so strangely cut off to be returned to you in this. Chapter 9 Doctor and Mrs. Leed were evidently not a little startled to learn, when they presently appeared, that I had been all over the city alone that morning, and it was apparent that they were agreeably surprised to see that I seemed so little agitated after the experience. "'Your stroll could scarcely have failed to be a very interesting one,' said Mrs. Leed, as we sat down to table soon after. "'You must have seen a good many new things.' "'I saw very little that was not new,' I replied. "'But I think what surprised me as much as anything—' was not to find any stores on Washington Street, or any banks on State. What have you done with the merchants and bankers? Hung them all, perhaps, as the anarchists wanted to do in my day. Not so bad as that, replied Dr. Leet. We have simply dispensed with them. Their functions are obsolete in the modern world. Who sells you things when you want to buy them? I inquired. There is neither selling nor buying nowadays. The distribution of goods is effected in another way. As to the bankers, having no money, we have no use for those gentry. "'Miss Leed,' said I, turning to Edith, "'I am afraid that your father is making sport of me. I don't blame him, for the temptation my innocence offers must be extraordinary. But really, there are limits to my credulity as to possible alterations in the social system.' "'Father has no idea of jesting, I am sure,' she replied, with a reassuring smile. The conversation took another turn, then, the point of ladies' fashions in the nineteenth century being raised, if I remember rightly, by Mrs. Leet, and it was not till after breakfast, when the doctor had invited me up to the housetop, which appeared to be a favourite resort of his, that he recurred to the subject. "'You were surprised,' he said, at my saying that we got along without money or trade, but a moment's reflection will show that trade existed and money was needed in your day, simply because the business of production was left in private hands, and that, consequently, they are superfluous now. "'I do not at once see how that follows,' I replied. "'It is very simple,' said Dr. Leet. "'When innumerable different and independent persons produce the various things needful to life and comfort, endless exchanges between individuals were a requisite, in order that they might supply themselves with what they desired. These exchanges constituted trade, and money was essential as their medium.' But as soon as the nation became the sole producer of all sorts of commodities, there was no need of exchanges between individuals that they might get what they required. Everything was procurable from one source, and nothing could be procured anywhere else. A system of direct distribution from the national storehouses took the place of trade, and for this money was unnecessary. "'How is this distribution managed?' I asked. "'On the simplest possible plan,' replied Dr. Leet. A credit corresponding to his share of the annual product of the nation is given to every citizen on the public books at the beginning of each year, and a credit card issued him with which he procures at the public storehouses, found in every community, whatever he desires, whenever he desires it. This arrangement, you'll see, totally obviates the necessity for business transactions of any sort between individuals and consumers. Perhaps you would like to see what our credit cards are like.' You observe, he pursued, as I was curiously examining the piece of pasteboard he gave me, that this card is issued for a certain number of dollars. We have kept the old word, but not the substance. The term, as we use it, answers to no real thing, but merely serves as an algebraical symbol for comparing the values of products with one another. 
For this purpose they are all prized in dollars and cents, just as in your day. The value of what I procure on this card is checked off by the clerk, who pricks out of these tires of squares the price of what I order. If you wanted to buy something of your neighbour, could you transfer part of your credit to him as consideration? I inquired. In the first place, replied Dr. Leete, our neighbours have nothing to sell us, but in any event our credit would not be transferable, being strictly personal. Before the nation could even think of honouring any such transfer as you speak of, it would be bound to inquire into all the circumstances of the transaction, so as to be able to guarantee its absolute equity. It would have been reason enough, had there been no other, for abolishing money, that its possession was no indication of rightful title to it. In the hands of the man who had stolen it, or murdered for it, it was as good as in those which had earned it by industry. People nowadays interchange gifts and favours out of friendship, but buying and selling is considered absolutely inconsistent with the mutual benevolence and disinterestedness which should prevail between citizens, and the sense of community of interest which supports our social system. According to our ideas, buying and selling is essentially antisocial in all its tendencies. It is an education in self-seeking at the expense of others, and no society whose citizens are trained in such a school can possibly rise above a very low grade of civilization. "'What if you have to spend more than your card in any one year?' I asked. "'The provision is so ample that we are more likely not to spend it all,' replied Dr. Leete. "'But if extraordinary expenses should exhaust it, we can obtain a limited advance on the next year's credit, though this practice is not encouraged, and a heavy discount is charged to check it. Of course, if a man showed himself a reckless spendthrift, he would receive his allowance monthly or weekly instead of yearly, or if necessary, not be permitted to handle at all. If you don't spend your allowance, I suppose it accumulates. That is also permitted to a certain extent, when a special outlay is anticipated, but unless notice to the contrary is given, it is presumed that the citizen who does not fully expend his credit did not have occasion to do so, and the balance is turned into the general surplus. Such a system does not encourage saving habits on the part of citizens, I said. It is not intended to, was the reply. The nation is rich, and does not wish the people to deprive themselves of any good thing. In your day, men were bound to lay up goods and money against coming failure of the means of support and for their children. This necessity made parsimony a virtue. But now it would have no such laudable object, and, having lost its utility, it has ceased to be regarded as a virtue. No man any more has any care for the morrow, either for himself or his children, for the nation guarantees the nurture, education, and comfortable maintenance of every citizen, from the cradle to the grave. "'That is a sweeping guarantee,' I said. "'What certainty can there be that the value of a man's labour will recompense the nation for its outlay on him? On the whole, society may be able to support all its members, but some must earn less than enough for their support, and others more. And that brings us back once more to the wages question, on which you have hitherto said nothing.' It was at just this point, if you remember, that our talk ended last evening, and I say again, as I did then, that here I should suppose a national industrial system like yours would find its main difficulty. How, I ask once more, can you adjust satisfactorily the comparative wages or remuneration of the multitude of avocations, so unlike and so incommensurable, which are necessary for the service of society? In our day, the market rate determined the price of labour of all sorts, as well as of goods, the employer paid as little as he could, and the worker got as much. 
It was not a pretty system, ethically, I admit, but it did at least furnish us a rough and ready formula for settling a question which must be settled ten thousand times a day if the world was ever going to get forward. There seemed to us no other practicable way of doing it. Yes, replied Dr. Leed. It was the only practicable way under a system which made the interests of every individual antagonistic to those of every other. But it would have been a pity if humanity could never have devised a better plan, for yours was simply the application to the mutual relations of men of the devil's maxim, your necessity is my opportunity. The reward of any service depended not upon its difficulty, danger, or hardship, for throughout the world it seems that the most perilous, severe, and repulsive labor was done by the worst paid classes, but solely upon the strait of those who needed the service. All that is conceded, I said, but with all its defects, the plan of settling prices by the market rate was a practical plan, and I cannot conceive what satisfactory substitute you can have devised for it. The government being the only possible employer, there is of course no labor market or market rate. Wages of all sorts must be arbitrarily fixed by the government. I cannot imagine a more complex and delicate function than that must be, or one, however performed, more certain to breed universal dissatisfaction. I beg your pardon, replied Dr. Leed, but I think you exaggerate the difficulty. Suppose a board of fairly sensible men were charged with settling the wages for all sorts of trades, under a system which, like ours, guaranteed employment to all, while permitting the choice of avocations. Don't you see that, however unsatisfactory the first adjustment might be, the mistakes would soon correct themselves? The favorite trades would have too many volunteers, and those discriminated against would lack them till the errors were set right. But this is aside from the purpose, for, though this plan would, I fancy, be practicable enough, it is no part of our system. How, then, do you regulate wages? I once more asked. Dr. Leed did not reply till after several moments of meditative silence. I know, of course, he finally said, enough of the old order of things to understand just what you mean by that question. And yet, the present order is so utterly different at this point that I am a little at loss how to answer you best. You ask me how we regulate wages. I could only reply that there is no idea in the modern social economy which at all corresponds with what was meant by wages in your day. I suppose you mean that you have no money to pay wages in, said I. But the credit given the worker at the government storehouse answers to his wages with us. How is the amount of the credit given respectively to the workers in different lines determined? By what title does the individual claim his particular share? What is the basis of allotment? His title, replied Dr. Leed, is his humanity. The basis of his claim is the fact that he is a man. The fact that he is a man, I repeated incredulously. Do you possibly mean that all have the same share? Most assuredly. The readers of this book, never having practically known any other arrangement, or perhaps very carefully considered the historical accounts of former epochs in which a very different system prevailed, cannot be expected to appreciate the stupor of amazement into which Dr. Leed's simple statement plunged me. "'You see,' he said, smiling, "'that it is not merely that we have no money to pay wages in, but, as I said, we have nothing at all answering to your idea of wages.' By this time I had pulled myself together sufficiently to voice some of the criticisms which, man of the nineteenth century as I was, 
came uppermost in my mind upon this, to me, astounding arrangement. "'Some men do twice the work of others,' I exclaimed. "'Are the clever workmen content with a plan that ranks them with the indifferent?' "'We leave no possible ground for any complaint of injustice,' replied Dr. Leed, "'by requiring precisely the same measure of service from all.' "'How can you do that?' I should like to know, when no two men's powers are the same. "'Nothing could be simpler,' was Dr. Leeds' reply. "'We require of each that he shall make the same effort, that is, we demand of him the best service it is in his power to give.' "'And supposing all do the best they can,' I answered. "'The amount of the product resulting is twice greater from one man than from another.' "'Very true,' replied Dr. Leed. "'But the amount of the resulting product has nothing whatever to do with the question.' which is one of dessert. Dessert is a moral question, and the amount of the product a material quantity. It would be an extraordinary sort of logic which should try to determine a moral question by a material standard. The amount of the effort alone is pertinent to the question of dessert. All men who do their best do the same. A man's endowments, however godlike, merely fix the measure of his duty. The man of great endowments, who does not do all he might, though he may do more than a man of small endowments who does his best, is deemed a less deserving worker than the latter, and dies a debtor to his fellows. The Creator sets men's tasks for them by the faculties he gives them. We simply exact their fulfilment. "'No doubt that is very fine philosophy,' I said. "'Nevertheless, it seems hard that the man who produces twice as much as another, even if both do their best, should have only the same share.' "'Does it indeed seem so to you?' responded Dr. Leed. Now, do you know, that seems very curious to me. The way it strikes people nowadays is that a man who can produce twice as much as another with the same effort, instead of being rewarded for doing so, ought to be punished if he does not do so. In the nineteenth century, when a horse pulled a heavier load than a goat, I suppose you rewarded him. Now we should have whipped him soundly if he had not, on the ground that, being much stronger, he ought to. It is singular how ethical standards change. The doctor said this with such a twinkle in his eye that I was obliged to laugh. I suppose, I said, that the real reason that we rewarded men for their endowments, while we considered those of horses and goats merely as fixing the service to be severally required of them, was that the animals, not being reasoning beings, naturally did the best they could, whereas men could only be induced to do so by rewarding them according to the amount of their product. That brings me to ask why— unless human nature has mightily changed in a hundred years, you are not under the same necessity. "'We are,' replied Dr. Leed. "'I don't think there has been any change in human nature in that respect since your day. It is still so constituted that special incentives, in the form of prizes and advantages to be gained, are requisite to call out the best endeavours of the average man in any direction.' "'But what inducement?' I asked can a man have to put forth his best endeavours when, however much or little he accomplishes, his income remains the same? High characters may be moved by devotion to the common welfare under such a system, but does not the average man tend to rest back on his oar, reasoning that it is of no use to make a special effort, since the effort will not increase his income, nor its withholding diminish it? Does it then really seem to you, answered my companion, that human nature is insensible to any motives save fear of want and love of luxury, that you should expect security and equality of livelihood to leave them without possible incentives to effort. Your contemporaries did not really think so, though they might fancy they did. 
when it was a question of the grandest class of efforts, the most absolute self-devotion, they depended on quite other incentives. Not higher wages, but honour and the hope of man's gratitude, patriotism, and the inspiration of duty, were the motives which they set before their soldiers when it was a question of dying for the nation, and never was there an age of the world when those motives did not call out what is best and noblest in men. And not only this, but when you come to analyse the love of money, which was the general impulse to effort in your day, you find that the dread of want and desire of luxury was but one of several motives which the pursuit of money represented, the others, and with many the more influential, being desire of power, of social position, and reputation for ability and success. So you see that though we have abolished poverty and the fear of it, and inordinate luxury with the hope of it, we have not touched the greater part of the motives which underlay the love of money in former times, or any of those which prompted the supremer sorts of effort. The coarser motives, which no longer move us, have been replaced by higher motives, wholly unknown to the mere wage-earners of your age. Now that industry of whatever sort is no longer self-service, but service of the nation, patriotism, passion for humanity, impel the worker, as in your day they did the soldier. The army of industry is an army, not alone by virtue of its perfect organization, but by reason also of the ardor of self-devotion which animates its members. But, as you used to supplement the motives of patriotism with the love of glory in order to stimulate the valor of your soldiers, so do we. Based as our industrial system is on the principle of requiring the same unit of effort from every man, that is, the best he can do, you will see that the means by which we spur the workers to do their best must be a very essential part of our scheme. With us, diligence in the national service is the sole and certain way to public repute, social distinction, and official power. The value of a man's services to society fixes his rank in it. Compared with the effect of our social arrangements in impelling men to be zealous in business, we deem the object lessons of biting poverty and wanton luxury on which you depended, a device as weak and uncertain as it was barbaric. The lust of honour, even in your sordid day, notoriously impelled men to more desperate effort than the love of money could. I should be extremely interested, I said, to learn something of what these social arrangements are. The scheme in its details, replied the doctor, is of course very elaborate, for it underlies the entire organization of our industrial army, but a few words will give you a general idea of it. At this moment our talk was charmingly interrupted by the emergence upon the aerial platform where we sat of Edith Leet. She was dressed for the street, and had come to speak to her father about some commission she was to do for him. "'By the way, Edith,' he exclaimed, as she was about to leave us to ourselves, "'I wonder if Mr. West would not be interested in visiting the store with you. I have been telling him something about our system of distribution, and perhaps he might like to see it in practical operation.' "'My daughter,' he added, turning to me, is an indefatigable shopper, and can tell you more about the stores than I can. The proposition was naturally very agreeable to me, and Edith, being good enough to say that she should be glad to have my company, we left the house together. End of chapter 9